Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. We're currently walking through a four-week sermon series uh, we've titled Redeemed Family. Um, as we learned in our last series through the book of 1 Timothy, the, um, the scriptures refer to the church as the household of God. We are God's children, God's redeemed family. And in a world of broken families, we the church get the joy and the honor um, of imitating God, of imitating our Father, of demonstrating for the world what it's like to live within a redeemed family. And to cap this series, just by way of announcement, we'll be holding a redeemed family forum. That's on August 28th, uh, right here in this room most likely. So mark your calendars for that. Uh, We've invited a group of seasoned church leaders from outside of Sojourn to come in and help us get practical with the the things we're going to be covering this month. Um, We're also accepting text-in questions anytime between now and the night of the forum. I believe they have that on the screen for us. Yep, there we go. Um, This week, we will be discussing singleness and dating. And and even now, I'm not 100% sure why I have been entrusted with this particular sermon. Perhaps it's because out of all the elders, I was single most recently. Um, it, could be, it could be that the elders think I have a few too many single friends, and so they're going to just throw me up here and see if I can't whittle that number down a bit this morning. Um, I don't know. Um, but in all seriousness, it's my, it's my earnest and sincere desire that every single unmarried person in the room this morning would leave this place encouraged. I do hope to challenge us, uh, both married people and single people alike. I have been challenged in preparing this sermon, um, but I want you to know that this is no diatribe. I have prayed that my words would build the church up in love, that they would be encouraging to you this morning. And as a married man preaching on singleness, I, I would hate for my words to be perceived as condescension. That is truly, truly not my heart. And you may be tempted to think I'm I'm even disqualified from speaking into singleness as a married man. Um, But I don't want you to hear from a married man this morning. I want you to hear from a brother, um, and in particular, a brother who remembers what it was like to be single. And it is difficult. It's It's not more or less difficult than marriage. It's not more or less difficult than parenting. It's uniquely difficult. And I struggled as a single guy. But more than hearing from a brother this morning, I want you to hear from your Father, from your Heavenly Father. Because I have opinions, and and if you know me, you know I have opinions. Um, But that's not what the pulpit is for. This is where we as the church family come together and receive from the Lord His Word. So let's get started. I know some of you enjoy and others love the writing of David Foster Wallace. Um, And he has one quote in particular that I really think sums up the heart of the issue for us this morning. He writes, We're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else to explain the curious feeling that we go around feeling like we're missing somebody we've never even met? So we live our lives missing somebody we've never even met. Does Does that feeling resonate with you? Actually, 
I actually hope that it does, because even the married person should have a deeper relational longing than marriage itself can fulfill. But I'm willing to bet that it's especially true for the single people in the room this morning in our church. We all experience singleness differently. We all experience it, but we all experience it differently. You, you may have never been married, or, or you may be newly single. You may be young and single and, and deep down assuming that this isn't going to last much longer. And you, may, you may be a little bit older and single and, and really wrestling with the idea that this could continue. And some of us may be uh, angry and bitter towards God or angry and bitter towards members of the opposite sex. Or you may be wrestling with same-sex attraction and not really knowing where you fit into the church, much less society. Some of you may be settled and content in your singleness. And you praise God for that. Praise God for that. But whereas our experiences are different, um, Ephesians 5 is for all of us. The Bible speaks very highly of singleness, and I'd love to trace a full biblical theology, Genesis to Revelation, the theme of singleness throughout Scripture, but we will have to save that for another sermon. Um, I do want to say one thing real quick. If you study this on your own, I, I would caution you, be, beware of any theology of singleness that seems to relegate marriage and parenting. Because God gives the gift of a spouse, and God gives the gift of a child, and God gives the gift of singleness. And so we shouldn't have to downgrade marriage in order to esteem singleness. And we certainly have to be careful not to elevate marriage over and above what the Bible clearly calls a gift, namely singleness, right? And so here's a question for all of us. Whether you are married or single, do you believe God when he says that singleness is a gift? Let's take a look at Ephesians 5. This passage isn't necessarily about singleness. It's really about uh, purity and impurity, wisdom and foolishness. It's about thankfulness and covetousness. It's about light and darkness, stewardship and wastefulness. It's about love, but not the, not the romantic love that our culture understands. It's about the sort of love that would compel God to become a man and to suffer alongside man, and to be killed by man in order to save man. And so, in other words, this passage is written for all of us, but it does implicate several essential truths for the single person. And we're going to take it in four chunks. So four chunks representing four biblical exhortations for, for all of us, married and singles alike. And then we'll narrow in and we'll explore the practical applications for singleness and dating in particular. Good? Great. Um, exhortation number one. Flee sexual immorality. Let's read verses three through five. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
And the word for sexual immorality here is a broad term for sexual promiscuity of any kind. It's the Greek word pornea, which literally means to sell off your sexual purity. And as a quick side note, isn't, isn't that what we do? Um, by the blood of Christ, we have been made pure. And yet in the heat of the moment, we value that temporal sexual pleasure over and above the price he paid for that purity. We literally sell off our sexual purity. And, and when, we when we consider it in these terms, it's clearly an issue of worship, right? But we'll, we'll get to that point in a moment. The word impurity refers to all sorts of moral uncleanness. The word filthiness refers to obscene behavior or poor character. Foolishness, the, the word foolishness here is actually where we get the English word moron. So literally, don't be a sexual moron. Um, crudeness refers to joking about sexual matters in an irreverent manner. Okay, so there's the vocabulary lesson. What's the point? Right. Why covetousness? Doesn't that word seem a bit out of place in this list? These verses have a clear sexual theme running through them. So out of every sin he could have named, why would Paul add covetousness to the list? Well, by definition, to covet is to desire something that you don't currently have. And this, is, and this particular sin makes the cut here because sexual sin is ultimately rooted in thanklessness. After all, what is lust if not sexual covetousness? Right? What is lust if not sexual covetousness? Instead, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Rather than sexual covetousness, let's, let's give thanks for God's grace. Let's not be idolaters. Worshiping the temporal pleasures of sexual immorality, let us be thankful and content worshipers of God. He has met us in our loneliness. He has fulfilled our relational longing. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And he offers his body to this body every Sunday. Think about this. The Christian man or woman who dies single will never be single again. Why? Because the kingdom of Christ and God is your inheritance. And on the other side of your final breath, your glorious and recreated eyelids will open to a wedding feast like you've never seen. And that heavenly marriage, unlike the best of earthly marriages, will satisfy you completely. And this is the reality for which earthly marriage is just a picture. It's just an image. And there's no sense in staring at a picture when you're face-to-face -face with the real thing, right? Can you imagine standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, all of this beauty before you, and yet, and yet you're staring at a postcard of the Grand Canyon? Likewise, we should not look to earthly marriage for ultimate satisfaction. It's just a postcard. And the thing is, the real, the, the real thing is here. It's here now. Let's think practically for a moment. Sexual sin destroys your ability to see in people what God sees in people. 
everyone becomes a potential sexual partner. We're constantly sizing one another up, and there's no place for that within God's household. That mindset is utterly detrimental to your neighborhood parish because when loving your neighbor turns sexual, you you, you become a liability to your community. So to get super practical, I I would encourage you to get a roommate. Um, Develop a relationship with them that's open and honest because sexual purity is more important than whatever reason you have for living alone. And if you're currently dating or engaged, please consider or, or reconsider how you are engaging one another physically. Some of us are are rightly committed to refraining from sexual intercourse until marriage, and yet we treat like we treat our years of of dating and engagement as a couple years of foreplay. The act of sex is liturgical. Um, let me explain. Every Sunday we come together and, and we have a liturgy. We rehearse certain truths that are supposed to teach us to to give love and receive love appropriately. And in the same way, uh, sex was designed to teach and train us to give and receive love appropriately. That's why it's only properly had within a marriage covenant. Because the act was meant to be an act of selflessness. It's an act of generosity where we give ourselves fully to another. But sexual sin is about taking. Sexual sin is a distorted liturgy. It's a, it's a form of self-worship. This is especially true of masturbation. Sexual sin will drive you deeper into yourself. Sex within marriage is supposed to pull you out. All right. We can get happier. Um, in the third point. Exhortation number two is do not be deceived. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We need to hear this. We need to hear this because the American sexual ethic, the very air we breathe, is philosophically empty. It's made up of empty words. And and with regard to sex, I think think the fundamental mistake of postmodernism is that we've equated humanity We've equated our sexuality with our humanity. We've made our sexuality essential to our personhood, which means to question another person's sexual decisions is tantamount to dehumanizing that person. It's why our culture has no framework for celibacy as a legitimate choice. And this deceptive little nuance, it's, it's tearing our society apart. And yet it's untouchable. Because not only is truth relative in postmodernism, but to question the deception is in itself an act of bigotry and hate. But if you're, in, if you're not convinced that our culture worships sex, look no further than Hosier. His song, Take Me to Church, was a number one hit in 12 countries. It was nominated for Song of the Year at the Grammys, Certified platinum five times over. All right, let me quote from the lyrics. He says, 
my church offers no absolutes. She tells me worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. No masters or kings when the ritual begins. Here he's singing about the sex, the sex act as a form of religious sacrifice. He says there's no sweeter innocence than our gentle sin. In the madness and soil of that sad earthly scene, only then I am human, only then I am clean. This is sad. He's singing about sex as a form of religion, and our culture is cheering him on, nominating him for Song of the Year. He claims that sexual intercourse is what makes him human and clean. So please pray with me that the Spirit of God would introduce him to Jesus, the only one who can truly make him fully human and fully clean. And so the prevailing sexual ethic is philosophically empty, and it will leave you empty. Do not be deceived. From where are you learning your sexual ethics? What influences your perspective on sex and dating and singleness more than anything else? Are you learning from your friends, from the Supreme Court? Are you learning from television from movies, from the checkout line at the grocery store? Are you learning from pornography? Or are you learning from Scripture, from the very words of the God who invented sex in the first place, from from the loving, gift-giving Father who says to you, singleness is a gift? Don't be deceived by the empty rhetoric you're being fed by our culture, rather flee sexual immorality. Verse 8, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. These verses say that we are light. Because we are branches in union with the vine, the fruit we bear is light. We actually give it to the world. And so when we love one another properly, we shed light upon the unfruitful works of darkness. May may the heights peer into our neighborhood parishes and see the sort of love and respect and mutual submission that by nature repudiate our culture's empty sexual ethic. Listen, loneliness is not an issue of singleness. It's an issue of unbelief. Married people are plagued by it too. So don't date because you're lonely. Deal with your loneliness by finding satisfaction in Jesus. The fact that you feel lonely sometimes does not change the fact that singleness is a gift. As, as my opening quote argued, nobody is free from feelings of loneliness. But the faith-filled Christian will respond to these feelings by resting in the truth that God is delightful and utterly satisfying. 
let me take a moment to briefly address online dating. According to one recent survey, 91% of American singles have tried some form of online dating. And so it's safe to assume that this is a thing in the church, right? Think about the internet in general. It's an incredible gift to the church. It's a common grace of God. It binds together the global church like never before. And, and even within the local church, it fosters community like never before. It's a, it, it provides platform after platform for us to saturate our culture with gospel truth. And yet, it can be misused, right? And, and we all know the ways that it is misused. And so I think online dating is similar. Um, it's a gift to the church, and many strong Christian marriages have found their genesis online. But online dating can be misused as well. We can easily justify being unreasonably picky. With our search settings, we can literally filter out genuine, Jesus-loving brothers and sisters on the basis of their height, their weight, their hair color, their hobbies. So in dating, whether, whether it's online or not, we need to value what God values in people. Is he or she a repentant Christ follower and servant of the church? Is he or she a repentant Christ follower and servant of the church? Then what are you waiting for? If he or she is a repentant Christ follower and servant of the church, that's about as sure as you can get. That's the sort of spouse who will walk with you for the next 50 years, hand in hand, into the kingdom of God. I know there are exceptions, but that's about as sure as you can get. And lastly, please don't date in isolation. For your good and God's glory, give your parish veto power over your dating relationships. And on the other hand, listen to your parish when they encourage you to date someone. As a member of the church, God has given you fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. And the Spirit of God is working through all of them. And so whether you're whether you're choosing a spouse or a career or a home or a city, do not neglect to hear the Spirit's whisper through your community. All right, exhortation number three is use your time wisely. Beginning in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine or craft beer. <laughs> For that is debauchery. Consider intently, Paul says, the manner in which you are conducting your life. Are you making the best use of the time? This phrase is literally commanding us to redeem or buy up completely the time and the seasons that we're given. It says the days are evil. And the word evil is the same word Jesus uses to describe the wicked and slothful servant who did nothing with what he was given by the master. He was not a true servant, and so he did not enter into the joy of his master. And likewise, 
your master has told you that singleness is a gift. It's something that he has given you. So as a single person, what does it look like to make the best use of the time? If the Apostle Paul, a single man, were in the pulpit this morning, how might he encourage you to use your time? Would he encourage you to float around between churches, never really choosing to root yourself anywhere? Would he condone the serial dater? Would he recommend staying on the fringes of your community since, after all, Houston is probably just temporary for you? No. No, he, he would tell you to lean in. He would tell you to serve. He would tell you to give of your time and resources to open your home to the homeless. To devour Scripture. To pray without ceasing to learn from godly men and women, to support the church's mission by sharing the gospel with your neighbors, by serving Sunday ministry teams, by pursuing parish leadership. You may have heard it said, real quick, you may have heard it said that marriage is the, the left lane of sanctification, that it's, it's like the fast track toward godliness. Um, to that, I, I say no, Absolutely not. That's not a biblical statement. And and I'm afraid people who say it didn't have the joy of experiencing real biblical community in their single years. Because if marriage is sanctifying, it's sanctifying because it it forces you to believe that you are not, um, that the universe does not revolve around you. The thing is, your neighborhood parish can teach you the very same thing, if you will let it. if you use your singleness well, if you redeem and buy up what you're given, your spare time and your resources in service to the body, you will grow in godliness. That's how it works. Plus, this is the best way to prepare for marriage. The first year of marriage doesn't have to be the nightmare that many people describe. The blessing, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing of laying your life down for someone else. The blessing of laying your life down for someone else does not have to wait until marriage. Exhortation number four, be a harmonious family. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want us to take a moment and picture the church as a symphony. Picture us all seated toward a common focal point. That's Jesus. He's the composer and he's the conductor and we take our cues from him. And with with glad and thankful hearts, we play our various parts, addressing one another with joy and giftedness and harmony. No single instrument is essential, but each is a member of the whole. 
The violin is never, never jealous of the cello. The trumpet needs the trombone. And we have before us the most beautiful score, the most beautiful composition ever written. We're each making melody to the Lord with our hearts as individuals, but together we achieve the sort of harmony that brings glory to the composer. That is a redeemed family. That's a redeemed family. That's what it looks like. Our souls need this type of church. We need this type of family. And and by God's grace, we've been given it. The Father has willed our unity. The Son has achieved our unity. And the Spirit has established our unity. But what does church's family mean for singleness and dating? Well, for those of us who are dating, it means she's your sister until she's your wife. And it means he's your brother until he's your husband. And so treat him or her accordingly. Honor him or her accordingly. Date him or her accordingly. But what about those of us who who may never marry? Are singles to be denied love? Are singles to be denied a family? Let's read from 1 Corinthians 4.15. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He was a single man, and yet he considered himself a father in Christ. He committed his life to making disciples and planting churches, and so he grew the family. And that's what's at stake when we talk about church as family. If church is what we do on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, we have nothing but abstract theology to offer the single person. Does that make sense? But if the church is a family, the single person can say, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This church needs to uphold and honor singleness as a gift. We can't afford to disparage or belittle singleness, even even if it's just on accident. Single people are not loose ends that need tying up. And so we need to be thoughtful with our language and our jokes and our matchmaking. We need to be careful not to unwittingly create a church culture where marriage is an unspoken expectation. We all need to do our part in fostering a healthy church culture wherein celibate Christians can thrive without feeling like anomalies. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, the serpent's lie was essentially this. Your God is holding out on you. If you obey him, you will never be happy. Single brothers and sisters, know that Satan is tempting you with the very same lie. 
know that Satan is tempting you with the very same lie. But remember, Jesus, the only perfect human in history, the God we're all called to imitate, was single. The mere thought of his heavenly wedding feast was enough to satisfy him on earth, and it's enough for you too. So no matter our marital status, if if we're struggling with discontentment, we need to see Jesus better than we're seeing him now. And Psalm 37.4 says, Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that promise, that promise is as true as Jesus is alive. What you most desire is not a husband or a wife or a child. What you desire is God. You were made to desire him. So delight in him. And he will give you what you truly desire. And he already has in Christ. Let's pray.